Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Father, we ask as we come to your word this evening, that you will indeed open our eyes to behold Jesus Christ. And that in this beholding, Lord, we will see the importance, the significance of the beauty of Christ in everything that we are and in everything that we do. And that in fact, Lord God, it is truly not about us, but it is about him and about you. And so I pray, Father, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll make that clear to us today. And truly open, Lord God, our eyes, our ears, our hearts and our minds that we might receive everything there is to receive of Jesus Christ and his glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've always been fascinated by that art form in which a mosaic is made out of thousands of photographs. I think you know what I'm talking about. When you stand back, you see the overall picture, whether it be of a person or of a landscape. And yet when you look close up, you realize that the whole image is made up of thousands of little individual pictures. You you all know what I'm talking about? It fascinates me how that's done. To take pictures, you know, of the different shades and different uh, colors and whatnot, and, and, and to make a, a very large mosaic out of individual pictures. And, and you know, the more in, imaginative and creative artists will even use pictures of the same subject, you know, to, to build this, this kind of, a, of an image. Weedings are, are very similar in that as you look at a cloth, You might see an overall color, but in closer inspection you see that there are many different colored strands that make up the cloth. And we can see much the same in the words of a prophet. They will sometimes write or speak, painting a a very broad picture in words. But when you examine more closely, you will find that there are actually several images that overlap. Take, for instance, the three prophetic strands that are woven together in chapter 41 and the beginning of chapter 42. And you'll see the common thread through these uh, three strands. We're introduced somewhat to the person of Cyrus in chapter 41 when we were at the onset of that chapter. We talked about Cyrus, who we will, of course, mention later. But, but uh, Cyrus would be used by God as, as his servant uh, Isaiah 44, you know, later on, and I, and I may have quoted from this already. But Isaiah 44, verse 28, it says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure. In other words, he is God's servant. This Gentile, Persian, Medo-Persian named Cyrus. He's my shepherd, he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built unto the temple, your foundation uh, shall be laid. In verse 1, the next verse, uh, Isaiah 45, it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, 
whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armors of kings, or loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. So Cyrus then, in this particular strand uh, of this weaving, as it were, is called a servant. And then we're told toward the end of chapter 41 of a second strand of thread. The focus, of course, is on the nation of Israel, whom God is telling them not to fear. And he clearly calls them his servant. Again, you go to chapter 44 so that you can hear those words. But in verse 21 of chapter 44, it says, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. And so here we have now Cyrus and Israel being called servants of the Lord. The third strand of thread woven into this picture is Messiah himself. And without any question refers to Jesus Christ. There is no question whatsoever that this is Jesus Christ that we're seeing in verse 1 and following of chapter 42. How do we know that this isn't speaking of, let's say, Cyrus or even Israel? How do we know? Simply because the Gospel of Matthew tells us this. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 12, and you read the words that are given to us by Matthew in verse 14, what you have to understand is that at this point in time, Jesus has been healing people, but he's healing them on the Sabbath, and he's being criticized, and he's being uh, uh, just uh, attacked by the scribes and the Pharisees. And we're told in verse 14 that the Pharisees went out and plotted against him, how they might destroy him. Simply because Jesus was healing on the Sabbath day. And notice that it says in verse 15, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. Now keep that in mind when you come to the descriptions that we find in chapter 42 of Isaiah of Jesus. But it says that he withdrew. When Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And yet he warned them not to make him known. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his names Gentiles will trust. The passage here in Matthew applies these words to the earthly ministry of Jesus, who very well could have destroyed his enemies, right? He very well could have destroyed the reed and the flax if if we were to apply them to the enemy, as being the enemies of Jesus. He could have easily destroyed them, but he always showed his patience and he always showed his mercy what this passage does in Isaiah 42 that introduces the Messiah here is brings us closer to the servant's heart of Jesus it brings us closer to the servant's heart of Jesus turn over to Mark chapter 10 if you're still in Matthew just go over to the next uh, book Mark chapter 10 by the way is this uh, are you, am I too loud or am I ringing in anybody's ear? I'm ringing in my own ears, so that's why I'm, I'm wondering. I, I like to be able to have the freedom to increase here, but I feel like I'm already yelling at you, and I don't mean to be yelling at you. But in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, it says, But Jesus called them to himself, and he said to them, speaking of his disciples, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life a ransom for many. What an example Jesus is of a servant. He says of himself, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is a considerable passage here, but, but again, we're trying to get to the, you know, to the very heart of what, what uh, Isaiah is giving us here, what, what the Lord is himself saying about his Messiah, about his true servant, about his faithful servant, his elect one, as we read already in verse 1. Here the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, speaks of of the comfort that comes through Jesus Christ, a comfort that comes because of His own very own heart that is to be expressed in in, in our own hearts toward one another. He says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy, he says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now if we stop there for just a moment, think about being of one mind. What have we been studying on Sunday mornings in the book of Acts? How the church that had been filled with the Holy Spirit, that had been just uh, immersed and, and baptized in the Spirit, were one in, a, in one accord, they were in love with one another in a way that was so precious, so special, because it was the love of God being shared with one another. And here Paul is reaching toward the same thought of them having the same love, being of one accord, being of one mind. And then he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Folks, take, take note. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. I'm, I, I'm sad to think that we don't heed those words in the church today. It's sad to me to think that, that we, we, we tend to do things because we have agendas. And we cover them up with some sense of, 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 of religiosity or spirituality. But we're not getting to the very deep and, 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 and root of what, God, what, what Paul is saying here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let nothing, nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, don't be so consumed with yourself that everything you do is just for yourself and everybody else doesn't count. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Folks, we could spend an hour just in this passage alone. He made himself of no reputation. What reputation do we have that is our own, that supersedes anything that Christ has made us? He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. This is the glorious Christ, eternal Son of God. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Now don't lose sight of this picture. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, there is an image that I get sometimes when I read this, and and, and it seems like I'm getting it right now because of a, a lot of stuff that I've read. Uh, by by anti-Christians, by uh, people on the internet writing, you know, and blogs here and there, and, and just saying everything uh, hateful and, and ugly and, 
and, and uh, just, just rude, in a sense, to, toward Jesus, toward the church. You know, of course, saying there is no God whatsoever. Let me tell you this, that those same people, if they do not come to Christ, if they do not come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, they will bow their knee to Christ, but they won't bow it in heaven. They'll bow it in hell. But they will bow it. Every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess. They may not be confessing that right now. Right now they're using Jesus' name to mock. They're using Jesus' name as a, as a, as a, as a curse word. But one day they'll know. And they'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, though they will never be in fellowship with Him. And it is to the glory of God the Father. But getting back to the person of Jesus, Jesus is our greatest example of servant leadership. Too often we find ourselves trapped into thinking that everything revolves around us. We think of ourselves and our problems. We anxiously think about our happiness or or worriedly think about whether our needs are being met. It's the way we are sometimes. All of us. Each and every one of us. But a true servant thinks about the true needs of others. Without ever thinking of himself. A true servant thinks about the true needs of others. What we are introduced to in Isaiah 42 is to more than just the the person of Jesus Christ. It is to more than just the person of Christ. We are introduced to the means by which we stay focused on Him. We are introduced to the means by which we stay focused on Him that we might be the servants that He wants us to be for the kingdom of God. And we see it in the first three words of verse 1. Behold my servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Folks, the Lord is calling to all. He is calling to the people of Israel as well as to the people of the coastlands. And and, and as we studied last time, the coastlands would mean everything else and everyone else and every place else. He is calling to every person. Just as, as Paul dealt with every person in Philippians chapter 1, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. He is calling to every person to behold his servant. What does it mean to behold? It means to study. It means to set your focus upon with wonder. It even means to behold Him with surprise. What I mean by that is this. Study Him. Focus upon Him. Be constantly surprised by Him in amazement. Are you not amazed by the wondrous things that God does for us? Are, are, you, are you ever just amazed at the, at, the, at the grandness of God, at the greatness of God, at the awesomeness of God? The very fact that God's servant is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ should alone surprise and amaze us. Did you know that? It should, it should amaze us that His servant, His precious servant is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I mean, he named Cyrus as his servant. He named Israel as his servant. But how distinct it is when he says, Behold, my servant, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. That should surprise and amaze us all. Why? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Would we give our only begotten sons and daughters? Will we, will we give to the fullest extent as, as God gave His Son? Is this not an amazing thought? 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. What does not amaze us about Jesus? What doesn't amaze us about His servant? Does it not amaze us that He came in human flesh? God who is eternal in the heavens, the, the eternal Son of God, does it, does it not amaze us that He came in human flesh? Does it not amaze us that He was born of questionable lineage on this earth? Doesn't it amaze us that He, he grew up in a city with a poor reputation? You think that God would have Him grow up in the best city of the world? Instead, He grew up in Nazareth. People talk about Nazareth. He's from Nazareth? You know. It's like El Paso sometimes. Isn't it an amazing thing that his, that his roving ministry was announced by a, an unconventional preacher wearing camel hair clothes and eating wild locusts and honey? John the Baptist? Wouldn't you have had somebody else announce you? Who would have smelled a little better? Isn't it amazing that his closest associates were undisciplined, uneducated men, many of them fishermen? Sure hangs around a lot of stinky people. Isn't it amazing that he died a shameful criminal's death, though he was perfectly innocent? Isn't it amazing that he rose from the dead and promised those who believed in his resurrection that they would have a glorified body like his for all of eternity? Isn't that an amazing thing? Isn't it amazing that He promised His followers that He would return for them to remove them from the earth, to take them to a place prepared for them in heaven? Isn't that amazing? But the biggest surprise of all is that while He would be away from His Father, His disciples in His absence are expected to imitate His servant style. That's what amazes me. That's what surprises me. In John 13, verse 12, and following, Jesus said this. Well, this is what it says of him. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. Notice, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. A servant is not greater than his master. The clay doesn't tell the potter what to do. It amazes me to think how many pieces of clay are trying to tell the potter how to make them. This is part of that dilemma in the church that we're constantly trying to find ways of us telling God what we want when God wants us to sit still the Bible says oftentimes be still, be still, be still and know that I am God what does God say here? Isaiah 42, verse 1, he says, Behold my servant. Study him. Set your focus on him. Be amazed at what you see. And don't study him just for a moment. Continually, constantly study him. Consistently focus your attention on Jesus. Take a close look at my servant, God is saying to us. 
Here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here is the elect one. Here is the chosen one. The Holy One of Israel. When God says, Behold, He doesn't mean to glance quickly at someone or something. Hey, look. That's how a lot of us do it. Look. Sunday mornings. Hey, look at the Lord. Okay. Almost time for lunch. Hey, look. A quick glance. That's all we give. That's all we give to Jesus. He doesn't mean to glance quickly at someone or something. He means to scrutinize. That's what the word behold means. It means to scrutinize. It means to fix one's eyes upon and study carefully. Have I repeated myself? Yeah, I've, 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 three times on purpose, I've told you exactly what it means to be whole. Why do you think I'm telling you that? Because I don't want you to forget what it means to behold Jesus. If more people would behold Jesus in the church, they wouldn't be holding such unbiblical and selfish views of Christianity in the Christian life. Did you catch that? If more... Christians behold Jesus, we won't be holding to other things. Especially the things that detract from our seeing Jesus and living for Him. Many people are fixing themselves upon other things. We're fixing ourselves upon authors with books of ten steps or principles for one thing or another. I'm not saying that's all wrong or all bad, but the Lord has a different program. The Lord has a different program. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Here's that program. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding. Do you see the word there? Same meaning, same thought. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, there's a real test. There's the real test of our Christianity. There's the real test of our intimacy with Christ. There's the real test of where we are to stand with Christ. The the, the, the test is, and the question is, are we being transformed into the same image as Christ and that by the Spirit of the Lord. Are we being transformed? Do you check yourself? Do you examine yourself to see that you're being transformed daily into the very image of Christ as by the Spirit of the Lord? For that is what we find here. We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Jesus told His disciples that He was the light of the world. And then he would tell them that they and we are to be the light of the world, reflecting his light to the nations. You see, when he tells us that we are to be the light of the world, what are we going to do? We're going to reflect his light, his glory, not ours. We are only the light of the world as we reflect the glory of the the risen Christ. But too often, just like an eclipse... His light doesn't shine on us because the things of the world and the cares of this life as the earth between the sun and the moon become a priority and we won't reflect the light of the Lord Jesus properly. We won't uh, do it appropriately. We won't do it rightly. We won't reflect that light. Why? Because there's something in the way. But if we behold Him, if we behold Him, we are changed from glory to even to an even greater glory. And we can say then with, with the psalmist David in Psalm 27 verses 4 and 5, One thing, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple, to behold, do you see the word? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. 
For in the time of trouble He shall hide me in His pavilion. In the secret place of His tabernacle He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. Folks, when you read that whole psalm, Psalm 27, you realize, you know, that, that question, you know, what, what is there for us to be afraid of? If He's our Lord. If He's our rock. If He's our fortress. If He's our deliverer. No matter what is coming after us. No matter what kind of things we're dealing with. One thing we have desired of the Lord. That's, that's what we're going to seek. I want to dwell in the house of, his, uh, uh, of the Lord all the days of, of my life. To behold His beauty. To inquire in His temple. The problem is we don't inquire in His temple. We inquire every place else but His temple sometimes. You have to understand... I'm not speaking at you. I'm speaking at us. I had to stand in front of the mirror before bringing this to you too, okay? So you'll understand. Behold, God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold. God has promised to uphold His servant. To uphold means to maintain, to maintain His servant. And in this particular context, it reminds us that not only does a servant have the responsibility to be obedient to his master, and of course Jesus is, is the perfect example of one who is obedient to his father, but, but a servant not only has the responsibility of being obedient to his master, but the master also is required to take care of his servant. That was what it was like in that culture. That is what it's like in the church. That is what it's like in the kingdom of God. We are to be responsible in being obedient to our master, but our master is required to care for us. There is then that sense of dependency of servant toward master. We are to be dependent upon our master. Are we fully dependent upon our master? Are we fully dependent upon our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Are we fully dependent upon Him? Are we trusting Him wholeheartedly for everything in our life? If this is true for Jesus, that the Lord upholds His servant, it is also true in the way that the Lord deals with all of His servants. God will take care of us. He has promised to take care of His servants. But there is another sense in being upheld by God. It is more than just being taken care of God or by God. The portion of verse 1 can also be translated this way. Behold my servant upon whom I lean. Behold my servant upon whom I lean. This would speak of the father's trust and confidence in his son. A father's trust and confidence in his son. It indicates a special favor. It indicates a dependence on the Son to the extent that God the Father leans upon God the Son, counting on Him to fulfill all of His purposes. Now, a question that we have to ask ourselves is, can the Lord depend upon us? If He upholds His servants, and if we get the full extent of what it means to uphold us, He certainly takes care of us and maintains us, but can He lean on us? And I don't mean to lean on us, you know. I mean, can he, can he depend on us? You see, if we're trying to live our lives and, and live our Christian lives in our own power, in our own wisdom, guess what? We're not going to be dependable. We have to lean upon him that he might lean upon us and use us. God, I can't be dependable in and of myself, but Lord, if you'll fill me with your spirit, if you grant me your wisdom, if you'll give me, God, your guidance and direction, and, 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 I, and I know that you're with me, I mean, I, I, I bear your promises, Lord. If I know these things, then I can be depended upon. But not by might or power, but by your spirit. And only by your spirit. And only by your leading. And then he says, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. You see, Jesus is both appointed and anointed. 
He is both appointed and anointed. This reminds us that it was the eternal plan and program of God to send His only begotten Son into this world to solve the problem of sin. Who else would God choose? Who else would God choose to solve the sin problem? There was not one person on the whole earth that could do it. Why? Because each and every one of us has been tainted with sin from from Adam. Who could, who could do it? Who else would God choose? Who else was with the Father for all eternity? And when you consider our own calling and election, it then becomes a matter of being chosen in Jesus, you see, because Jesus was called to this. He was appointed by God. My elect one in whom my soul delights. And so even our election, even our calling into the Lord has to be dependent upon Jesus. Think about it for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And notice verse 4. Just as He chose us where? Chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, Verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself. Again, it's toward Jesus, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, and notice His last phrase, by which He he has made us accepted in the Beloved. Who is the Beloved? It's Jesus it's talking about. He's the Beloved. We've been accepted in the Beloved. The very fact that the Father delights in His Son reminds us that His calling and election are not cold, hard, calculating issues. As some people have made this thing about, you know, the election and predestination and all that. We made it cold. We made it hard. We made it calculated, you know. It is connected deeply with His love. It is connected with His grace. It is connected with His support, His approval. That is why we are not to, uh, to try to earn our approval from God. But realize that it is His free gift to us, received by faith. He has chosen to delight His soul in us because of Jesus. When He looks at us, what does He see? Does He see us who have strived to be saved? No, we don't strive to be saved. He looks at Jesus who died for us. He looks at us and he sees his blood, his son's only blood, his only begotten son's blood on us. He sees, he sees him and as in he accepts us in the beloved because we have trusted in the Lord, because we have accepted the truth of Jesus Christ dying for our sins, shedding his blood for our forgiveness, rising from the dead. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, Paul says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, it wasn't us. It wasn't by any works of righteousness that we did. There is no way that any of us in this room could ever earn our way into heaven. Paul says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, and by the way, that means the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of eternal life. And then Jesus was anointed. He not only was appointed, but He was anointed and that He was filled with the Spirit. And He did His work in the power and moving of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 3, remember, in verses 16 and 17, when Jesus had been baptized, He came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and, and, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon Him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It is at that moment in time that the Lord now anoints His only begotten Son and sends Him out into His very calling. But His soul, the Father's soul, delighted. It says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
And there will not be one thing that he does from this point on, and, and even from the time before this, but from this point on to the very end. And I don't mean the very end of his life because he rose again. I mean to the very end, which is no end, which is eternity. From this point on, he'll never disappoint me. He will always be my delight. And what will he do? It goes on to say there, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. His ministry would not be exclusively to the Jewish people. Jesus would bring forth help to all kinds of Gentiles. It must be remembered that Gentiles were despised to such a degree that that Jews would actually go 200 miles out of their way to avoid Gentile territory. They would walk that far away around Samaria, as it were, to get up to the northern regions of, of, of Israel. As we've learned in the book of Acts, the anointing of the Holy Spirit motivates and moves us to love and good works. To love and good works. If Jesus is the light of the world, that includes the Gentiles, as we'll see in verse 6. Next time. But we have to move on to verse 2, because we don't have a lot of time. In verse 2, he goes on to say this of his servant. He says, he will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Another important characteristic of the Messiah is that of being approachable. He was not only appointed and anointed, but he's approachable. Jesus can be approached. I, I don't understand what it is about some people who think there's, they have just a tremendous amount of self-importance that they hide themselves behind bodyguards and, 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 and even in, in so-called Christian circles. People have bodyguards. Don't, don't think that the disciples and the apostles were Jesus' bodyguards. They thought they were. They, thought, they really thought that, you know, but they weren't. Jesus didn't need them. Bottom line is he doesn't need us either. So what makes us so self-important that we have to hide behind bodyguards? One of the wonders of the world. (laughs) Jesus was approachable. He loved it when children came to him. I, I I just wish I could just see, you know, Jesus sitting there and the apostles trying to keep the kids away. He says, hey, don't let them, let them come to me. He says, let them come here. For such is the kingdom of heaven. And they probably climbed on his lap and on his back and he's over there and they're pulling on his beard and loving him just so much. Can you see that? I can't stand these pictures that people have of Jesus. Jesus never smiled. Jesus never laughed. He was so holy. Well, he was holy. But that didn't keep him from loving and from truly loving those that he made in his image. Healing, touching lepers. Sometimes I think that some people didn't want to touch Jesus because he touched lepers. But if anybody could touch a leper, make a leper clean and never be dirty himself, man, that's something else. That's something to be amazed about. I better not get off the point here because I've got time is not on my side. While he was appointed by the Father and anointed by the Spirit, Jesus was truly humble before men and that's what made him approachable. When we are told that he will not cry out nor raise his voice, it doesn't mean that he never spoke loudly. Sometimes I have to speak loudly. Do you know why sometimes I raise my voice? This is just between you and me because, you know, you guys are here because you want to be here on Wednesday night, so I'm just telling you this. I I, I raise my voice sometimes because I'm trying to get somebody to wake up. But it's none of you. Okay. I think. (laughs) Hey, you know what? uh, All right. Okay. Okay, when it says that he, you know, that he will not cry out and raise his voice, it doesn't mean that he never spoke loudly. It refers to his gentle heart and his lowly actions. That's what it's talking about, really. In other words, he didn't shout or shriek so as to startle people. 
That's not what he was all about. He didn't cry out to dominate or to shout over others or to shout others down. That's not the way Jesus worked. That's not how he operated. He didn't raise his voice so as to advertise himself. Hey, look at me. How many times did Jesus do things and then tell people, hey, don't tell anybody? How many times? He did it a few times. See, understand. He didn't need to promote himself, nor did he need a publicity agent. He didn't need an agent. He didn't try to shout somebody down. It amazes me what people call Christianity today. Yelling and shouting and screaming. And never really growing in the knowledge of God's Word. What's all the shouting about? That's all outward. It's not inward. Jesus didn't need to shout. And by the way, we don't need to shout at Him because He he hears us. He's not deaf or deaf. He's not deaf. As a matter of fact, if we never even said a word, he He knows our hearts anyway already. We don't even have to shout. I love what Alan Redpath says. He says, think for a moment. Think for a moment about the modesty of God. Listen carefully. Think for a moment about the modesty of God. He is always at work. He guides the sun, the stars, and the universe. He controls every galaxy. He refreshes the earth constantly. But he works so quietly that many people now try to make out that there is no God at all. That is the hallmark of reality in service. God's artists do not put their signatures to the pictures they create. His ambassadors do not run after the photographer all the time to get their pictures taken. It is enough that they have borne the witness to the Lord. It is enough that they have borne the witness to the Lord. The great thing is that we can always come into His presence. That's the great thing here. We can always come into the presence of the Lord. He's approachable. Even now, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, He's still approachable. We can still come to Him. Hebrews 4, 14-16 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can always approach Jesus. Even now. That brings us to verse 3. When we do approach Him, what is He going to do with us? See, a lot of times people don't want to approach because they're afraid of what Jesus is going to do or say. Listen, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. The bruised reed and the smoking flax are pictures of us. They're pictures of us. Whether we want to accept that picture or not, that's what they are of us. It's sad to think that A good number of people in the church believe that God deals roughly with our weaknesses and failures. Much like a coach. Many of you used to play football, sports, or any sport. Ladies and and, men, no athletes in here? Raise your hands high, come on. There's nothing wrong with your shoulders. Okay. All right. You know, it's it's like like a coach who yells at, at a fallen player. Even hurt player. This, this has happened in the past. Maybe you experienced it. You're down and you're hurt and the coach gets in your face and he says, Hey, get tough or get out. If you want to keep playing, you got tough, man, you know. And sometimes we think that's the way God deals with us. Reeds grow in the Galilee. They grew then in Jesus' time. They grew then in, in Isaiah's time. But reeds grow in the Galilee to this day. But under the heat of the sun, then and now, reeds wilt. They're just like us. 
We spring up like a reed, but when fiery trials come our direction, we start to wilt and then eventually we collapse. I'm not saying anything that you're not familiar with, am I? Crushed or hurt by unkindness? A life bent and bruised and shattered without strength or beauty? We've all experienced that to some extent, to some degree. And yet God's servant, God's elect one, will handle us so gently that he will not break us. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God's love for us? That he will not break us. Like flax that doesn't light very well. Smoking flax. That's why it's called smoking flax. It's something that you try to light for kinder, kin, uh, you know, uh, to kindle, kindle a fire. I forgot the word, but anyway. Uh, kindling. All right. That's uh, the same word. Uh, but it's like that. You know, you get this stuff together, but you, you light it, but it doesn't really light. It just smokes, you know. Just like that, we oftentimes just smolder. We, we don't, you know, we're supposed to have the fire of the Holy Spirit in us, right? We know that. But sometimes we're just smoke. We're just smoldering. We're ashamed. Folks, listen, we are ashamed that our light dimly burns and that we are more smoke than fire. Sometimes we are that ashamed. But the Lord Jesus will not quench us. Praise God. That he just doesn't say, ah, look at that smoke. Aren't you glad he doesn't do that to you? Aren't you glad? You know, if we were God, we'd do that. That's why we're not God. We judge. And we judge harshly sometimes. He won't spit to turn us out. You know what he does? He blows on us. Why? Because when you blow on those smoldering embers, you'll just catch. He blows on us and he fans it into flame again. That's where many of us are right now. We need that breath of God. We need the breath of God to light us again to get that fire going on us again what this is saying is that Jesus sees the value of a bruised reed he sees the value of smoking flax we may not see it in others We may not even see it in ourselves, but God sees it. And he sees us of inestimable value. Because without him, we are good for nothing. Without him, we are good for nothing. With, with his strength and with his spirit, we, uh, he, can, he can and do, it will do great things through us, you see. With his strength and with his spirit, he can and will do great things through us. Did you notice that I said he can? With his strength, he can through us. Paul said, when I am weak, then am I strong. Because my strength is made perfect. In weakness. When I surrender to that, when I acknowledge that, His strength is my strength. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and following says, For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And notice this phrase here in verse 16, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might, through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love 
may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the depth and the, the width and length and depth and height. In other words, in every dimension, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. When when it comes down to it, we don't do the work. He does it through us. But we need to have his strength. We need to be strengthened with His glory and with His strength in the inner man. The last thing now, and and we've got to close with this, but in Isaiah 42, verse 4, now the fourth verse, and this is the greatest part of this whole thing, is that it says, He will not fail nor be discouraged. Now contrast that with you and with me. For how many times have we failed? And how many times have we become discouraged because we failed? And yet it says, He will not fail nor be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for His law. This verse lets us know that God's servant is gentle but not weak. It is so amazing to think that Jesus never gets discouraged even with the tools He has to work with. Look around, where are the tools? He never gets discouraged with the tools He has to work with, you and me. The implication in connection with the previous verse is that there are no bruises. By the way, the same word for bruises is similar to the word for discouragements. And so there are no bruises about him. And he is no, more, he is no mere smoking flax, which by the way, the word flax is connected very closely to the word failures. And so there are no bruises, no smoking flax in this servant of the Lord. This is all due to the fact that he knows his plan to be complete. He knows that he's going to complete the things that he has begun in us. Think of Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Notice this, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to complete what he's begun with you. That's why he'll never fail. That's why he'll never be discouraged. And in John John chapter 10, an even greater statement because of what Jesus says himself in verses 26 to 30, he says, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Does he fail? Does he get discouraged? If he's in control, I tell you what, we ought to be encouraged. He says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Is he going to fail? Is he going to let us go? And then is he going to say, well, that one's gone, oh my. He's not going to do that. Because he doesn't fail. He doesn't get discouraged. Why? Because his plan is already complete. He has seen the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And it says, and lastly, till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. The work of Messiah, and we'll carry this on from here next time, but the work of Messiah will eventually extend to the whole earth and all the people will serve him. But let me ask you these last questions here tonight. Are we ready to behold Jesus? Are we ready to behold Him, to study Him, to completely keep our eyes fixed upon Him? As it says in Hebrews chapter 12 where it tells us, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross and despising the shame now sits at the right hand of the Father. Are we ready to behold Him, to study Him, to focus intently upon Him, to be constantly in amazement, surprised in wonder and awe of Him? Are we ready to fall in love with Him and to become more like Him? Are we ready? I tell you this, if Jesus is coming at any moment, we better be ready. We better be ready. We got to stop playing games. 
And we've got to start living with our eyes on Jesus. And not let anything get in between his light and our reflection. The world, the flesh and the devil want to be that body that gets in between the sun and the moon like the earth. But we can set all that aside. I got I to gotta share this. I know I'm already late and your kids are probably wondering where you are. But I've got to share it. Hebrews 12. I, I mentioned it, but I didn't write it down, but I want you to turn there. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2 and 3. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. You see the responsibility we have? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Isn't that the way sin is? Just easily ensnaring us if we take our eyes off of Jesus. Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is a track illustration, folks. A long-distance runner doesn't carry any monkeys on his back, any weights, any, any kind of thing. No changos here. He lays them aside. And then he says, running the race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The starting line and the finish line is Jesus. From start to end, it's Jesus. From beginning to end is Jesus. Why is he called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end? Because he's the start and the finish. He is everything in between. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. But look at verse 3, and we close with this. For consider him who endured such hostility. Consider him. That means keep looking at him. Keep intently looking at him. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Don't give up. Why? Because Jesus didn't give up for you. Let's pray.